Welcome to Modern Aikido's podcast. If you would like to support my work, please help by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast if you're watching this on YouTube or BitChute. These are all free and help out a great deal. Word of mouth is how shows like this reach more people who are interested. Another way you can support this podcast is by way of a PayPal tip jar. You can leave a donation of any amount you like, or set up a monthly donation just like Patreon or Subscribestar, only I don't make you pay for my content. I only invite you to contribute. There's a link in the description. I sincerely appreciate your interest and support. It's extremely common for martial artists to look at sport fighters for inspiration on what their skills should reflect. The reason is that martial sport competitors display vigorous and effective technique execution, particularly against a resisting opponent. Obviously, having your technique succeed in such a situation is something that any martial artist wants. Looking solely to sport fighting is hyper-focused on the application of physical technique, though. The focus on superb technique execution has its place in martial arts training, no doubt. Without solid execution of technique and practicing to deal with the many variables of real violence, we will be left with little chance of success. The reason I say that looking too closely to sport fighting is hyper-focusing is that sport fighting is a very different creature than self-defense. There are many differences, and I want to cover just one in today's episode. That is the lead-up to the physical exchange. There are a number of differences in that lead-up, so there will be a number of aspects to go over. First off, a sport fighter is almost never surprised by who his opponent is. There are very few rare instances where opponents are changed at the last minute in prize fights, but this is extremely rare and frowned upon by managers and fighters. The reason is that once a fight is negotiated, a careful study of each opponent is made and training is adjusted to account for the offense and defense that each fighter will need to succeed against the other. Film is examined and an entire training process is engaged to fully prepare each fighter for that fight. As for the fight negotiation itself, the fighters are fairly matched so as to provide an entertaining fight for the spectators. This means they are pretty close in skill level and within an agreed upon weight range. Each fighter is also never surprised by when and where his fight will happen. They have time to prepare physically and mentally. The mental preparation is even more important than the physical. They spend months building the physical tools they will need to face this particular opponent. The mental preparations are also considerable, both in the weeks preceding the fight and in the hours leading up to the fight itself. Of everything I just described, not one single aspect exists in a self-defense situation. Let's go through each one in order. You don't know in advance who you may be approached or attacked by. It may be somebody who is 50 to 100 pounds heavier than you are. It may be someone who has some fighting skill, but you have no idea what his background is or what you are in for. The best you can do is eye him up when you see him show his ill intent, but you will probably get little more than an estimation of his size. When and where the fight happens is also a surprise. It may be you are in a poorly lit area with little space to move. The ground may be uneven or with obstacles all over the place. You may be cornered in a very tightly confined area with no means to escape. Think of an elevator or a bathroom. You may be tired, physically exhausted, or injured at the moment you are confronted. Maybe you've had a few drinks and you aren't operating at your best. Whatever training you've done better have included dealing with someone of his size or capabilities. If he has some kind of grappling skills and you've never trained against a grappler, you will likely lose very quickly. Same goes for boxing, kicking, or just about anything else. I also include street fighters who are quite effective and must not be underestimated. Just because they haven't trained in a dojo doesn't mean they aren't capable. 
Their art may be honed specifically for the environment they are in, which is where you are right now. This leaves them with a significant advantage. This brings me to the major difference I wanted to discuss in today's episode. That is the lead-up to the physical exchange itself. The lead-up for a sport fighter is well mapped out, and the fighter has a team to help him plan and train. There is no roadmap for the self-defense situation. You are caught whenever and wherever you are, and must think on your feet, without assistance, to how to solve your potential violence problem. Maybe you have a minute or two, or maybe you only have a few seconds to figure out your plan. When I say plan, I'm not talking about how to do your physical engagement and win the fight. I'm talking about assessing whether or not a physical engagement is imminent, whether you can escape and how, how to deal with someone who needs your protection, and many other factors a sport fighter never needs to account for. These are things which are probably going through your mind, or should be, when you get those first instincts which tell you that trouble is brewing. Maybe you have good awareness and you notice a troublemaker who has their eyes on you. Maybe he or they have made it easy by having announced their bad intentions. Oh yes, the sport fighter never has to deal with multiple opponents either. He only ever has to deal with one-on-one. Now let's turn your self-defense situation around and look at it from the aggressor's perspective. Many years ago, I came across a retired police officer who had made a study of the process criminals used to ply their craft. He interviewed hundreds, from street muggers to kidnappers and rapists. What he shared with me was sobering and chilling. After he shared with me what he learned, I've seen the same thing echoed from other sources. Here's basically how it goes. A criminal isn't as one-dimensional in their process as the average person thinks they are. To the victim, the incident they just experienced feels random and totally out of nowhere. To the predator, thug, or criminal, there is nothing random about it. The victim is usually unaware, which gives the criminal the opportunity to initially spot and assess whether the potential victim is a viable target. This is sometimes called the interview. It starts when the criminal first lays eyes on someone and thinks this might be an opportunity. Kind of like a wolf who first lays eyes on the caribou. From that point, a process starts. First, does the target have something the criminal wants? This could be something simple, like, do they look like they have money, jewelry, or an expensive cell phone to steal? A simple defense to this is to dress modestly and don't flash money or jewelry. If you look like you have nothing of value, a robber who is looking for a score will likely dismiss you as a potential target. In some parts of South America, they use the phrase, don't give away the papaya, as a euphemism for not making overt displays of wealth which will attract robbers. While this is a good approach, this is not always possible. One example might be, sometimes we need to go to a cash machine. No real way to hide that. Another issue is that a criminal may want something other than valuables. They may be looking to beat someone up just for fun. It may be kidnapping or raped on their mind. It is rather difficult to hide the fact that you're female. As I said, sometimes it's just not feasible or possible. I've just described the initial assessment, which is only the first step in a much longer process. Once the criminal eyes up something he wants, he starts to assess how easy it will be to get it. Kind of like seeing a flashy new car on the showroom floor. First you have the desire to get it, then you ask how much it costs. The things criminals look for when assessing a target are, is the target alone or in a group? Is the target aware of what's going on around them or are they distracted? Will they be easy to approach? Do they look physically capable or are they weak? Are they wearing shoes they can run in? Is the area fairly clear of people? 
Is there a secluded spot nearby where they could quickly pull the target into? There are more factors involved, but these cover the major ones. What they are doing is a fairly elaborate process of profiling. This process is not instant. It may go on for minutes and may even involve following the potential target to see if conditions change. For example, the target is initially spotted in a crowded area. The criminal may follow them until they leave that area and go to a more secluded one. Maybe it's a shopping mall and they follow the target into the parking ramp, or an office building and into an elevator or stairwell. You get the idea. The interview doesn't stop here. It's only about halfway through the process. Keep in mind, the target is completely unaware that they are in the sights of a criminal. To the innocent victim, they are going on about their business as normal. They have no idea that they are on the course leading them to a violent encounter. If things are going right for the criminal at this point, he gets to choose the best time and direction to approach the target. He will study to make sure that there is no one else around and the spot for the encounter is to his advantage. Maybe where the target is cornered or has limited options to get away. He makes his approach, and this is where things get interesting. We often think that this is where the knife or the gun comes out and the threat, give me your wallet, happens. Sometimes it happens like that, but far more often some dialogue ensues. This is the next step of the interview. The criminal wants to do two things. Assess the target even further for how much of a pushover they are, and put them at ease for the time when they do show their hand. It's a way to both relax and confuse someone. When you put someone at ease, you get them to lower their guard. In this final phase of the interview, there are three main things going on together. The first thing is that the criminal can come to his final decision on whether to follow through with his attack or assault. He can avert this decision at any time with no risk to himself. He makes sure everything about the situation is to his advantage. If not, he simply moves on without the target ever knowing how close they came to violence. The second thing is that a verbal exchange can set the stage for the moment of attack. This might consist of either subtle physical maneuvering to corner the target sufficiently so that there's no escape or way out. This doesn't need to be done via posturing or threats and works better in terms of surprise if it's done without the target noticing. People are easy to maneuver if their guard is down. The third thing is using this time to close in range and either distract the target or merely wait for the perfect opportunity to make the final move. By final move, I don't mean the knife stab or punch, although it could be that. The final move is when it suddenly becomes obvious to the target that they are now dealing with actual violence. It might be when the criminal says, give me your wallet, or don't scream or make a sound and get into the car. Whatever the criminal truly wanted, it's now plain to see. The criminal uses a combination of subterfuge and the target's firm belief that danger is nowhere near them. One thing that victims often say is that they were taken completely by surprise. They had no idea that they were about to be mugged or attacked. They say that there was no indication of what was happening. In truth, there was, but they didn't recognize what was going on. They were blind to the indications. So what is the solution? While I could simply use the catchword awareness, it's accurate, but can seem vague. Just by learning that there is a process that a criminal predator often uses, you will now be able to recognize it if you do happen to see it. You are still responsible for being observant, but now you know some of the subtle signs to look for. Even more, you know a bit more of how the other side works. As Sun Tzu wrote, know your enemy and know yourself, and in a hundred battles you will never be in peril. Martial art training is getting to know yourself. 
Learning the process that criminals often use is a valuable lesson in starting to know your enemy. The word enemy here is not because you have chosen that label. If someone is willing to take action against you and use violence to deprive you of your safety, property, or your life, they have made you their enemy. It was their decision, not yours. Pay heed to that fact, or you will be in serious trouble. Think back over the whole process I just described, that of a criminal predator who wants to take something from you. It may even be someone who wants to get into a fight and is looking for a decent target. A sport fighter deals with none of this within his realm. He doesn't deal with ambushes or being set up while he isn't aware. He has the luxury of knowing well ahead of time what he's going to face. There are a few accounts of sport fighters getting into street fights. A number of accounts describe fighters with solid skills getting overwhelmed and beaten in real-world situations. It's not always, but there are enough examples that we conclude that being a solid sport fighter is not necessarily enough to give good odds in real violence. A few sport fighters come from backgrounds with a lot of real-world experience. Boss Rutan comes to mind as an example. I'm sure Boss would be the first one to admit that sport fights and real fights are quite different. Consider this as you look around at examples of fighting. Appreciating these two different realms will help expand your understanding of conflict and violence. What do you think? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube, or go to the Facebook group Aikido the Martial Side and post a comment. The Spirit Aikido Online program, as of now, has 120 videos in the program, with new ones added every few days. The most recent series of videos, I cover fundamentals and application of Kaitenage, as well as a powerful way to deal with someone who tries to pull you down with them after you throw them. I also started a series on kick defenses. There's a link in the description section. I invite you to check it out. I always enjoy hearing from listeners of the show, whether through comments or questions. Thank you all for sharing your interest. Enjoy your training.